You're listening to Adam and Eve, your feminist radio show on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. My name is Marco Visconti. And my name is Rose Eva Forbes Jenkins. Thanks for tuning in. On today's show, we're sharing stories about artists and the various ways they break barriers and ground us with a sense of belonging. We have interviews with Gwich'in visual artist Nijitsul Norbert and Egyptian poet Nermin Youssef. First, we're going to hear from Nijitsul Norbert. Nijitsul is a Gwich'in artist, photographer, and community advocate based in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories. Nijitsul is also the Indigenous Youth Engagement Coordinator at Taking It Global, an organization aimed at mobilizing youth to tackle global challenges and inequities. Back in summer of 2017, Autumn Schnell spoke with Nijitsul about her journey of becoming an artist and how she balances feminism and indigeneity in her work. Van Gwinzi Nijitsul, tell me a little bit about yourself. Van Gwinzi Nijitsul Norbert Vilshi, Shritu Kaikit Gangwichin. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Nijitsul Norbert, and I was born and raised in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories. Uh, I'm an artist, an activist, and an advocate, and I work with mentoring uh, the Gwich'in youth in my communities. Uh, we have a group called The Next 40, which is a really exciting uh, initiative that brings together educational and cultural um, endeavors, I guess. And I also work, recently I just started as the Indigenous Youth Engagement Coordinator for the organization Taking It Global. And most, yeah, most importantly, this role is, uh, I have a number of portfolios with them, but the most important one is uh, the Connected North School Lead. So I'll be the school lead in the NWT and Nunavut uh, communities and schools. And so this program, Connected North, actually connects uh, Northern and usually Indigenous communities with the same opportunities that Southern uh, schools and students would have. So, um, yeah, so that's the the main drive of that work that I'm doing. Wow, that's so important for the North. It is so important. Um, You know, having an equity of how students from across Canada learn and and what we get exposed to, you know, it's so important for equity and for how we move forward together and and not leaving any of our students behind. So you mentioned portfolios. How did you initially get introduced to art and what started your passion? You know, it's funny. Initially, I was not interested in art. My sister, my dad, and uh, my mom were all artists. And I always wanted to do something, you know, as most kids wanted to do, is go to space or be a veterinarian. And (laughs) those were my number one drives when I was a kid. But Uh, When I turned 18, I actually had the opportunity to go on a trip called Canada World Youth. And we lived in China for many, many months. And during this time, I had uh, my trusty Pentax K1000 35mm camera. And this camera became a way that I started looking at the world. And it when I got back to Canada, I then went on another trip called Ship for World Youth, which is uh, sponsored by the uh, Japanese government. And Ooh. so after these two trips, uh, it was really clear to me when I came back to Canada that I knew I wanted to pursue photography in some way. 
Yeah. Yeah. So that uh, then led me to go to university in Toronto. Uh, but I had this very interesting experience with this professor. And it was the end of my second year. And my professor said to me that nobody would be interested in art made by an Indigenous person. What? Yes. Yeah, so that was my introduction to some of the violence that Indigenous students can experience in the post-secondary school environment. Wow. And this opportunity, though, you know, I could have walked away. I could have cried and walked away and and really honestly um, had listened to this person. But luckily, I felt like my ancestors and people... Um, I felt like my ancestors were behind me. And so I stayed in the room in front of the teacher, in front of the class and rebutted him. And yeah. and we had a really interesting dialogue. But that that was what kind of started it. It's like from that negative uh, comment was really where the drive and the course of my life would take me and creating art uh, that did talk about the Indigenous history and reality became my number one important uh, thing in my art career. And now it's been uh, over a decade. Wow, that's wonderful that that both inspired you and upset you to the point where it made (laughs) you inspired. Um, Yeah, totally. And what about feminism? How did you get started in your path to feminism? Well, that's an interesting question. I was, um, you know, my father was a single father. Um, he was also a recovering addict. Yeah. Um, and he experienced almost a decade at residential school. So with all of those factors in mind, um, you that that's almost setting up someone for failure and setting up that child for failure. But by some miracle... Um, my father uh, gave up his addiction. He was the best single father who would cook for me and, and braid my hair. And he worked through and is still working through much of his um, the history to do with residential school. And so traditionally, though, what my dad always taught me was that we as Gwich'in people were matriarchal. Yes. And so many of these matriarchal structures have remained intact even through colonization. And for example, like my my father takes care of my grandmother, my Jiju, full time. Wow. And that's, yeah, and that's part of this idea that um, not only our elders, but the women in our lives um they're so important. And so at a young age, um, that was really, really ingrained into me. Yeah. And then what would you say makes your art feminist art? Again, going back to my time at university, I didn't have much connection to um, the people back home. I was living in Toronto, you know, 3,000 kilometers away from my home and any of my matriarchal uh, elders and, and mentors. So what I started to do was I taught myself how to from memory and this is something that I remember as a child is like watching my aunts and my grandmother uh, watching them feed and then so this became a practice this became a meditation this became a way of connecting with my ancestors and um, also my grandmother was uh, going through cancer at the time and so I was feeling very uh, far removed from them so I started again to use it as a meditative sort of tool and to ground myself and then from that in my art practice it moved to looking at my grandmother's floral patterns Mm -hmm. that she 
has been creating for her whole life. She's 96 this year, and she's been creating floral patterns that as far away as Alaska, people would ask for my grandmother's work and for her patterns because she was so well-respected. Um, wow as an artist so in her own way she was an artist and throughout this decade of my art career she has inspired me almost in every single project that I've ever done Um, so (laughs) where that ended up most recently is uh, some of my recent work I work with street art uh, methodologies like paste-ups, wheat pasting, and graffiti. And these are directly inspired by my grandmother's floral patterns. And I'm still there. Like a decade later, I'm still investigating my grandmother's um, history and legacy when it comes to her art practice and how um, she clothed people and how uh, she fed people and how the land supplied her with the tools to do that and through trade and building relationships. So it's so interesting. There's so many different connections when you think about Indigenous feminism and what it looks like. And so uh, that's actually just been like an ongoing continue investigation in my art practice for 10 whole years yeah decolonizing (laughs) one beat at a time exactly so how do you combine both feminism and indigeneity into your art i would say carefully it has to be done with care yeah um it has it's not tokenistic yeah um sometimes it can be very tongue-in-cheek uh, and then other times I've actually used it almost uncomfortably or to challenge a viewer. So it, it's a range, it's a spectrum, and I think that every dialogue is different when it comes to art. Not one piece is going to reach everyone, yeah. um, but if you take care to build the message behind the scene before you release your art, that's where kind of the control from the artist can just ever so slightly be in control because really art is subjective right yeah totally um it's really yeah for me the combination of feminism and indigeneity in my art again like subtly and with care because you don't like from my mentor's perspective is that you don't want to hit people over the head but you also don't want people to be able to totally change your message so it as artists know it takes so much time and effort and a lot of my art practices actually before I even pick up uh, anything like to create with Mm -hmm. I do my research and that's a huge huge part about it so it's like sometimes I go back into archives or I read books or I research online or uh, do audio interviews like this with with elders or people who may have some of this information. So that's usually behind before I even start creating anything. Do you notice how art affects youth's lives through your job as the Indigenous Youth Engagement Coordinator at Taking It Global um, and as a practicing artist? Most definitely. You know, I think a lot of, specifically here in the Northwest Territories, we have a lot of our youth who are funneled towards careers in the trades and oil and gas. And that's because um, the system has basically abandoned them and does not see them as a producing, productive, passionate member of Mm -hmm. our education system and society, right? So this is a systemic thing that affects our youth as they go through their education system and so to be an artist and a young indigenous artist would 
would almost be unfathomable. Like, why would we support that? Mm-hmm. And why would society, you know, there's no room for that in society. And so when I do workshops with youth, it's mostly I talk about my life. I talk about what we've talked about here today, like the the difficulties, the 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 corners and like the major halts that have happened in my life and that is usually what inspires them because I feel like they can understand that they can have an artist as they can be an artist uh, as their career as their life art is something that you can do no matter your ability and so when you give that gift to youth that no matter what they do you know they're doing a good job I just there's something there that they... It's just so inspiring for them. Exactly, and empowering. They, yeah. they are empowering themselves to see their own light. So it's it's a very powerful thing. Mm-hmm. Art, um, as you know, like it's, it's changed my life. I've been doing this for over a decade, and yeah. I couldn't imagine my way, my life in any other way. Welcome back to Adam and Eve, your feminist radio show on CJSR. My name is Marco Visconti. And my name is Rose Eva Forth Jenkins. We just finished listening to Autumn Schnell's interview with Nijitsal Norbert about uplifting Indigenous youth with the visual arts. If you want to learn more about Nijitsal, you should visit her website, nijitsal.com. And that is spelled N-I-G-I-T-S-T-I-L.com. On today's show, we're sharing stories on how art can help us to create a sense of belonging in the face of adversity. Next up, we have a special edition of Poetry Eve with my friend Nermin Youssef. Nermin is an Egyptian poet, now based in Edmonton, who holds a PhD in pharmacology and currently works as a health policy advisor for the Albertan government. I spoke with Nermin about coping with displacement through poetry and finding creativity in scientific study. Uh, Hello, my name is Nermeen Youssef. I am an Egyptian living in Canada, and uh, I moved to Edmonton from Cairo in 2009 to pursue a doctoral degree in pharmacology, and now I work as a health policy advisor for the government. All views are my own. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I'm curious, when did poetry become a part of your life? Um, I've always been a very keen recipient of poetry. Um, But I didn't start writing it until I moved to Canada. So I've always had this appreciation um, in a cultural event in Cairo where there's there's a poet reading something with a musical background and collaborative projects like that or poetic voiceovers over short films. Uh, These were things that always caught my attention. But I didn't feel like I had poetry in me until I had the space to think about it. Mm. Uh, and that was after I moved here. So you know, you didn't write poetry when you were in Cairo? I wrote um, uh, fiction and nonfiction, social commentary. Mm. I had a blog uh, that was like I wrote anonymously for, for a few years. And um, I would post poetry from other poets I admired, but all the original writing would be just short fiction Mm. or nonfiction. What do you think about Canada gave you the space to think about the idea of having poetry inside you? (laughs) Well, it's the the contrast. I grew up in Cairo. It is very um, crowded uh, in every way. 
so uh, intellectually it is. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of people, a lot of noise. So ma- there's overstimulation. When I moved to Edmonton, there was the like the opposite in um, in respect to silence and. Um, Regarding also what I did, it was very different from what I did in in Egypt, and I didn't have the social uh, circle that I had there, so there were less distractions and more quiet time, Mm. and there was more time needed to reflect on the experience that I was having here. So you're a bit of a renaissance person. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. I'll put very, that on my CV. Yeah, very accomplished <laughs> in science and art, which I think people are really interested in, people who can sort of exist seamlessly within these two worlds that are often so separated. Mm-hmm. At least here in Canada, we tend to think of them as separate. Um, so I'm wondering, do you, do you think that your science background helps you as you write poetry? Or is it separate in your mind? In my mind, for some time, it was separate. Um, When I viewed this dichotomy as uh, an identity crisis, (laughs) like, what am I? Like, why why am I doing science when I can do art? But then I do art, it's like, but I love science. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it's, it's when I changed my mind about it, it's like, why do I view it as a curse? There are so many artists who were scientists um, and who are very accomplished. And um, I think both inform each other. They bleed into each other a little bit. Sometimes I feel like the topics that I read about in science spark certain uh, threads of imagination that I want to follow as a poet (laughs) or as a writer in that sense. Do you think pharmacology is poetic in its own way? There is an aspect of creativity in pharmacology. So how does a drug affect your body? How was that drug discovered in the first place? Who was the first person who walked in and decided, oh, I think that rotting dish might have something to cure a disease? Like, why? Pharmacology is rich in the sense that you are faced with a problem that you need to think around in order to fix. You see the implications firsthand in members of your family. We all get sick. Most of us take a lot of drugs right, to, to <laughs> overcome that. Mm-hmm. But so you see that impl- like firsthand, you see a person going from um, like a, a major ailment to the opposite, quite a healthy person. You know that person, you know their story, you've talked to them before. You've seen how a disease impacted them and their loved ones and your relationship together, how they speak, how they hold a coffee mug. These are things you observe as an artist, right? Um, To inform your writing when you're studying people in a way. And And as a scientist, you record them. A needle cuddles my grandmother's fingers, names a first grader's blazer in cross stitch. A needle, familiar with my trembles, finally breaks shy skin, immune. A needle hums from friend to friend, acquaintance to stranger, enslaves me. A needle in a paramedic's hand extends to a drowning self afloat. 
A needle inking loved ones into a grateful body counts my years clean. A needle pleasantly skates over vinyl, calls our palms to embrace and dance. The needle always points north, forever oblivious to the cradling hand, color blind. So you've written this piece called Pointed, which to me is very much within this crossroads between your sensibilities as a scientist and as an artist. Um, so you wrote it for this project called Together, Alberta's Notebook for the Global for the Global Goals, uh, hosted and developed through the Alberta Council for Global Cooperation, and it's all based on the UN's um, Sustainable Development Goals. Um, and you were given the goal, or you chose the goal of was it good health and well-being? Good health and well-being. Yes. That's sustainable development goal number three, yeah. and sustainable development goal number ten, which is reduced inequalities. Mm. Right. So it's mm-hmm. very much in line with your background. <laughs> I, I feel. You know, earlier you mentioned that sometimes when you read scientific texts, that that can spark poetic thoughts or lead you down a path towards. A poem. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering, um, what what inspired you about the concept of a needle? Was there something that grabbed you about what a needle is and how we use it in all these different contexts? Absolutely, um, such a great question. <laughs> <laughs> so um, during that time, I was heavily reading about the fentanyl crisis, and I understand it's not a needle, but it it just um, was generating so many images of uh, addiction and um, that use of uh, of needles to to make yourself happy or you make to make yourself numb. Also, my background is in diabetes, so insulin injections are mm-hmm. <laughs> are a massive part of my uh, of my life. So um, so that was what sparked it initially. But then I decided that why look at at one thing? So a needle could mean so many things. And I wanted to focus on one word that could mean different things to different people. I was also thinking about uh, inequalities, which is the sustainable development goal number 10. And when it came to addiction, um, if one person is using a needle, when is it a condition and when is it a crime? Are we treating our users equally? And um, part of it is also equality in receiving health care, equality in receiving the knowledge to inform you on making um, good health decisions or... Um, yeah, it, it just, I, I went into that uh, train of thought. It took over a little bit. <laughs> it's like, ah, so what is a needle? What is a yeah. needle to me? What is a needle to you? And <laughs> the, I like how you, you went from, you know, a needle in a, a medical sense to a needle in a compass at one point. My <laughs> previous experience with your work was through the Borderlines program with the Writers Guild of Alberta, which was about... Um, interconnectivity between um, different cultural groups or the experience of the migrant and multilingual writers. And 
Um, I can kind of once again get this sense of location or placement and mm-hmm. displacement in your writing, even if it's not totally uh, on on the surface. So I'm also curious to know: do you do you write as a way to place yourself in the world? Is that something that you think about quite a bit? Absolutely. It's it's part of just deconstructing the experience uh, in a way that can make you understand what's what what you are in this new place. Um, and uh, what what is everything in relation to you and what you mean to to things around you um, it does help you understand uh, it's as you know writing is very cathartic but some of it can also be used to shed light on issues that are important to you so with the borderlines I wrote the poem about um, uh, it was called justice of salt about the migrants fleeing Syria through the Mediterranean to go to Europe and then never making it. So, um, and that was based on um, things we've all seen as collectively uh, in, the, in the migrant crisis and from the stories of the Syrian newcomers who came to Edmonton um, at the start of last year. So, in a way, it's, uh, it's a way to express anger and um, to pour down your thoughts and distill what's good and what's noise, what can be used to push you further or, and, and what is just, you know, static. Mm-hmm. In the grounds of coffee, my grandmother saw a journey from river to lake. She told me, you will leave ancients of sun to ancients of snow. You will recognize the pride. Vastness will strike your heart hollow at first. Longing will paralyze your tongue at first. But fear not, warmth will find you. One day, when you almost declare winter heartless, Bannock is broken. When it's too still, remember to look up. Your ears are guiding you to marvel at the dancing lights. When it's too empty, remember to look back. Watch the wings of ravens extend on guard. Hollowness you will decorate with smiling faces of new, chosen family. You will stomp to majestic drumming and slowly realize the heartbeats are mine. Sail from Nile to North Saskatchewan. Do not be scared. Bear our greetings. Today, by the river, I remember you and sprinkle grounds of coffee. Salam. Hi, hi. Welcome back to Adam and Eve, your feminist radio show on CJSR. My name is Rose Eva Forks Jenkins. And my name is Marco Visconti. We just finished listening to a segment called Poetry Eve with Egyptian poet Nermin Youssef, who performed two poems, Pointed and Room. You can read Nermin's poem, Pointed, in an online magazine published by the Alberta Council for Global Cooperation called Together, Alberta's Notebook for the Global Goals, which you can find at together.acgc.ca. 
And you can read her other poem, Room, in an ebook published by Action for Healthy Communities called Home, Stories Connecting Us All, which features a diverse group of writers who now make Edmonton their home. And that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode on creating community through the arts. And thanks again to our guests this week, Nijitzel Norbert and Nermin Youssef. Have an excellent Adamant Evening. Adamant Eve is a spoken word project of CJSR FM, and our journalism is funded by you, the listeners. We produced this week's show at the CJSR studios in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, on Treaty 6 territory. We are grateful to the diverse Indigenous peoples of this land, including the Cree, Blackfoot, Métis, Nakota Sioux, Iroquois, Dene, Ojibwe, Soto, Anishinaabe, Inuit, and many others whose histories, language, and cultures continue to influence our vibrant community. For more information on our program and to send us any feedback, please check out our website, adamantivecjsr.wordpress.com. We're always looking for more volunteers to help out, so if you're interested in learning any aspect of radio production, just get in touch. 